1985, Marianne O'Brien Malkin began funding an annual lecture at Rare Book School and at the Book Arts Press, which was originally known as the Saul M. Malkin Lecture in Bibliography, and by permission in recent years has been known as the Saul M. and Marianne O'Brien Malkin Lecture in Bibliography. I gave that lecture in 1991, depressing everyone with a speech called The Future of Rare Book Libraries. And I thought, 12 years later, that it would be interesting to take a look at that and see how I did, because it was a predictive lecture. So what I'm going to do, I have shortened the 1991 lecture somewhat so I can get through it in good time here. What I'm going to do is to give the gist of what I said in 1991 and then comment on the extent of my wisdom and stupidity. In 1991, I said, There are few better ways of making a fool of yourself than by trying to predict the future. In 1965, the political scientist Carl Deutsch was asked to speculate about life in the year 2000 then 35 years away. His assignment, he said, was like being asked to talk about the year 1800 from the vantage point of the year 1765, predict the coming of steam power and the effects of industrialization, the, in, the revolutions in France and America, and the rise of mass armies, or to talk about the year 1900 from the vantage point of the year 1865 predict the use of electricity as a source of energy and the development of the internal combustion engine, the rise of labor unions, and the high watermark of imperialism and colonialism. But if predicting the future is, is a foolhardy undertaking, it is, almost, it is not always an impossible one. And the exercise is potentially useful and possibly an essential mechanism for dealing with areas of concern in which rapid change is occurring. I am convinced, said I in 1991, that rare book libraries, both in the United States and worldwide, are at the beginning of a succession of cataclysmic transformations. The most important of these changes will be caused by the increasing disinclination of most general research libraries over the next several decades to continue to maintain large, permanent collections of paper-based books of any sort, rare or non-rare. This is not to predict that research libraries are going to go entirely out of the codex book business, but rather to say that they will increasingly look upon their current book stock as a convenience collection to be used and eventually disposed of without remorse. Much of the paper-based information we use at present is already generated from electronic copies owned by publishers and by them constantly updated, corrected, expanded, improved, and regularly republished in paperback, in paper-based form for the use of purchasers in a handy codex format. In the future, readers are increasingly going to have direct online access to electronic text and data files containing the materials they require and increasingly they will perceive that they do not ever need and do not ever want access in printed form to the bulk of this material, a circumstance already routinely the case with users of large online databases. 
1991. The big change is yet to come because most journals and monographs are not yet available to their end users in machine-readable form, but soon enough they will be, and then there go the stacks. I do not mean to suggest that our descendants are going to be doing all of their reading from CRT screens. It is already very easy to make a convenient printed hard copy version from texts accessible in machine-readable form, and it is becoming easier and cheaper to do so all the time. But the more likely the master text is machine-based rather than paper-based, the more likely that paper copies are going to be used and viewed as the temporary physical manifestations of a permanent electronic ideal. We're already used to this idea. When we buy a paperback copy of, say, a Hawthorne novel in an airport bookshop to read on a long plane ride in case we don't like the movie, it's unlikely that we're ever going to form much of an emotional attachment with a particular copy of the paperback book we just purchased. We may well have another and better printed or better edited copy at home or in the institutional library we frequent. The paperback we just bought at the airport serves an immediate purpose and, if it is brought home at all, is consigned to a back bedroom or a weekend house or donated to the public library annual sale or eventually just tossed out an object which had a purpose which it has now fully fulfilled. In no sense is the text of the Hawthorne novel endangered by our carelessness with the particular airport bookshop copy at hand. Expand this example to include more and more of the books published today, not only reference books, but standard texts of all sorts and ages. The scholarly press is full of news of massive projects to put into machine-readable form vast quantities of material ranging from the collected works of every poet mentioned in the New Cambridge Bibliography of English Literature to the entire corpus of the literature of Latin and Greek antiquity. Check, check, both done in 2002. Paper-based printed texts, especially as regards the current monographic literature, continue at present to be indispensable. But every year from now on, a little more of that literature will be available online, and every year more and more of us will be using it in that form. It seems inevitable that soon enough the texts of practically everything that anyone is interested in, new or old, poetry or prose, popular or arcane, boring or interesting, English or Sanskrit, is going to be available online. The more so because of the simplicity of the technology involved as far as the end user is concerned. The equipment necessary to convert a printed paper-based text into machine-readable form is already relatively inexpensive, and the requisite technology is becoming constantly cheaper and ever more ubiquitous. Author, genre, subject, period, and other special interest groups are forming everywhere, online of course, and it seems entirely likely that, for example, every major edition of every work, of every author, of every age in which there is any general or academic interest will be available in machine-readable form before very long. And if you grant this assumption, then I think you must also agree that the university library already changing quickly at the moment, is going to change much more quickly still in the near future. Indeed, university libraries are already under every kind of pressure to convert their paper-based holdings into machine-readable form. Over the long, or possibly even the medium haul, 
they cannot afford the cost of maintaining ever-growing collections of objects which require separate cataloging and physical preparation, separate housing, separate house cleaning and preservation procedures, and separate access conventions. These changes in general research libraries will have an enormous impact on the future of rare book libraries. Until not so long ago, a library's rare books differed from the library's other books simply in degree. Rare books are more valuable or more fragile or more scarce or more brittle or more something than regular books, but still measured along the same scale. General libraries have always been interested in the contents of books, whereas rare book libraries are more especially concerned with the container in which those contents are to be found. But they're all books, the same elements at either end of the spectrum. What's going to happen to rare book libraries when the general research libraries to which they're connected begin to lose interest in storing large numbers of paper-based books, new or not so new, in their stacks? General libraries have in fact been preparing themselves for moving out of the codex book storage business for many decades as one substitute mechanism after another has emerged and become cheap enough for widespread use. The increasingly pervasive availability of texts formatted in electronic form will tip the balance. As the use of information derived from machine-readable sources accelerates in general research libraries, a gulf will widen between them and their rare book departments. Since almost by definition, the contents of rare book libraries do not consist of substitutes, but of the real McCoy, books valuable as objects because of their age, the circumstances of their manufacture, their beauty, their associations with former owners, their annotations or other interesting signs of use, the non-reproducible quality of their design or their illustrations or their bindings, valuable as objects, valuable as something you can pick up and hold in your hand. General libraries are beginning to see rare book libraries as something increasingly different from themselves to think of rare book libraries rather as museums whose patrons tend more to look at books than actually read them. And while the place of museums in our culture is in general a well-established one, their place on academic campuses and within general research libraries is not so well-established. Many educational institutions are going to become increasingly dubious about the appropriateness of maintaining museums of the book on their campuses. Indeed, I think that many thoughtful general research library administrators are already uneasy about the resources required for the adequate care and feeding of their rare book departments, and that they wonder whether the activities of such departments still fit under the umbrella of the services appropriately provided by the libraries for which they are responsible. In any event, and whether or not library administrators are now interested in this matter, it is certain to me that soon enough senior university administrators are going to be fascinated by it, and for a simple, compelling reason. You will have heard, 1991 still, libraries are, excuse me, universities are short of money these days, seemingly worse than ever. The reasons for the shortage are many and various. They're as close as the pages of this morning's newspaper. State and local governments, themselves strapped for money, have less to give the universities they support. In the private sector, expenses are continuing to rise faster than income, despite relentlessly steady tuition heights, hikes.
In university libraries, both public and private, the situation is grim at the moment and getting steadily worse. Research libraries continue to need to furnish services over a constantly widening range while being provided, at least relatively speaking, with constantly decreasing resources with which to do so. And a parenthesis from, 1970, from 1991, uh, Stephen Ferguson told me recently that in the past 20 years, the collections in the rare book departments at Princeton have doubled, and the staff has remained the same. Over the past two decades, back to 1991, over the past two decades, for instance, libraries that have had to open up, over the past two decades, libraries have had to open up enormous wedges in their budget pies to pay for automation. Very few institutions enlarge their library's share of the total budget in order to pay for these increased costs. Similarly, libraries are providing various sorts of online services unheard of 20 years ago, especially for free. They have been relatively unsuccessful in finding new sources of money with which to pay for these services, and the result is poverty all around. This problem is not a new one. Academic and research libraries have been grimly aware for a long time of their inability to keep up with the increase of human knowledge. They have aggressively engaged in networking and resource-sharing activities designed to help them cope with increased responsibilities coupled with decreased funding. But the resources available to them have by now shrunk to a point where rare book departments within larger general research libraries are having to shoulder a much greater share of the burden than has up to now been generally true. This has not, until very recently, been generally so. Throughout the 70s and most of the 80s, rare book units have more often than not tended to be protected from overall library budget and staff cuts. Library directors have given their rare book operations most favored nation status, perhaps in part because rare books are attractive for enhancing the library's public relations base on campus. Moreover, directors tend to like the parties. They like the festivities and the other excitements that rare book departments can generate. An exhibition opening is easier to celebrate than the acquisition of a new circulation system or the implementation of changes in an online catalog. Budget cuts in university libraries have now been so severe for so long, however, that rare book departments, too, are feeling the pain. I want to quote to you a letter I received a few weeks ago. That would be early 1991 from a f former student of mine who's curator of rare books at the flagship campus of an institution generally thought of as one of the better American Western state universities. You may, he writes, have heard some of the fiscal horrors that are being visited upon us by the governor and the state legislators. The library is particularly hard hit, and this has encouraged our director to wield his battle axe, particularly because the position of head of special collections is vacant, and thus there is no one around to object to what he is doing. What he is doing is dismantling special collections. He has already uprooted the Russian Studies collection. The curator will probably be turned into a regular services librarian. My job is to go. He has told me not to count on my job to continue after next year. Rare books will be dumped on our state historical collection, the literary manuscripts on the university archives. These are both departments for which there is a mandate to maintain them, otherwise he might be tempted to cut them as well. The position of head of special collections will be eliminated. 
None of this is to save money, he writes. That is only the ostensible reason. This is all politics, the director working desperately to save himself and his position, since he has had a great deal of public criticism for some bad decisions. In the short term, it may possibly do him some good. In the long run, it will ruin the university's claim to be a research institution. The, the, the VIPs at this institution who make the decisions are all hardcore scientists. They care very little about the humanities and are perfectly willing to sell all of the rare books to the first dealer who shows up on their doorstep. Note that my former student, still 1991, attributes the decline of his rare book department not so much to lack of money as to changing priorities within his institution. A shrewd characterization, it's not simply that university libraries cannot afford to run rare book operations anymore. It's rather that increasingly they don't want to. In this attitude, they are joined by an ever-increasing number of metropolitan public libraries. In this month's American Libraries, December 1991, uh, there is a report that portions of the rare book collections at the Kansas City, Missouri Public Library will go up for auction early next year. And so they did. The librarian's director commented, This approach will result in the materials being placed in collections where they will be appropriately preserved and any research value fully realized, while yielding a potentially significant exchange on these assets for the library's endowment fund. We must remember that for most readers, the change from paper-based information sources to electronically-based information sources will be a great improvement over the present situation. Information will be cheaper and more widely and easily available to them in more places. Once acquired, it will be easier to manipulate, to copy, excerpt, index, translate, store, and retrieve. We must not let whatever personal affection we have for books as physical objects blind us to the fact that most persons are, when push comes to shove, quite free of emotional relationships with the physical containers in which their information needs are met. The end of the book as physical object in libraries, academic, and public is not yet quite in sight. At least in the foreseeable future, it is unlikely that all machine-readable texts will, be will invariably work better than any paper-based ones. Printed books are going to continue to be produced for a good long time to come, especially those with complicated formats. Top-of-the-line firms uh, like the Steinhauer Press, which specialize in illustrated books, will prosper. Got that one wrong. Still, slowly but surely, we are beginning to view codex books in two quite different ways. On the one hand, as convenient and disposable printouts, and on the other, as art or museum objects. Libraries are susceptible to fashion. What one library does, another tends to imitate. In general, research libraries are a lot more like each other than they are different from each other. Just as soon as the technology allows, or perhaps a bit sooner, trend-setting research libraries are going to go out of the permanent paper storage business, and the great majority of other libraries will follow them, lickety-split. Most research libraries will not want to maintain much more than convenience collections of paper-based materials, and they will begin the substantial accession of their present book holdings in successive decimations, which will include at least many of their rare books. 
we are about to enter a period in which we will see the wholesale destruction of institutionally based rare book collections. Not everything will go. An institution is likely to retain in their original physical formats materials which are part of their own history. Books notable for their physical beauty or their sentimental appeal will have a good chance of retention. Books which are particularly good examples of their physical genres or formats will routinely be retained, books in original bindings and in fresh condition, for example. A local connection or relevance will become more and more important as a measure to determine the retention or discarding of paper-based books. The focus of special collections will more and more follow regional lines. Professionally trained rare book librarians are themselves going to have a major role to play in the downsizing of their collections, for they are the persons best trained to make the decisions as to what books should be retained in their original formats and what books should be deaccessioned. In the more or less immediate future, that is to say during the next decade, that would be the, the 1990s, rare book libraries Rare book librarians will be asked to contract their on-campus book storage space. They will thus need to establish classes of books which can be sent to remote storage. Over the longer haul, they will have to set up criteria for separating their rare book sheep from their rare book goats, permanently deaccessioning a great many sheep, retaining a modest number of locally relevant goats. Many of these deaccession decisions cannot intelligently be made by a single institution in ignorance of what other institutions are doing along the same lines. If we don't work together, then we will all tend to save the same classes of materials and will all tend to throw out the same classes of materials. Few copies of Shakespeare's first folio are going to be sent off to sanitary landfill but practically all copies of practically every non-illustrated periodical are at risk, as is the great ruck of just plain, non-splendid printed book from virtually all places and periods, especially if they are in poor physical condition. Physical bibliographers are well aware that the story a book has to tell does not end with the text. In 1990, Tom Tansel eloquently set forth at another Malkin lecture, the ways in which a book and a work, the container and its contents, are different. In his Malkin lecture, Tansel described the current national enthusiasm for what is called preservation microfilming, and he argued that the originals should be retained even after they have been filmed. Microfilming as a preservation mechanism has great limitations we can with absolute confidence expect that our ability to reformat library materials will continue to improve. The list of reformatting devices employed by libraries during the past century is a long one. Photo, uh, photography, the photostat, microform, cheap offset lithography, xerography, video disk technology, the electronic digitization of texts and now of images, microfilming, after all, is simply one of the chronological steps along the long preservation way. Later generations of students will always need access to the originals in order to derive new levels of information from them as the feasibly available technology improves. It is the responsibility of rare book librarians to see that suitable copies do survive. 
robocall librarians must take the responsibility for devising regional, national, and international plans for ensuring the survival of at least representative examples of the widest possible range of materials retained in their original physical format. They will not be able to save much of anything in the original format, but they must find ways to save something of everything. Rare book librarians can and must do more than this. They must embrace a new role as curator of museum objects and expand that role. There isn't room for many museums of the book as such, either in this country or worldwide. There is, however, far more room for museums of the history of communication. We need to work towards the creation of institutions concerned with the history of the communication of ideas, whether through books printed in manuscript or through graphic images or through film and video or through digitized images and sound. In short, we need to take as our province and responsibility the history of words and especially the history of the physical entities which now serve or which have served to transmit those words. This mission overlaps that of art museums but only to a limited extent. By and large, art museums are not generally concerned with the history of words as such. There is an overlap between book museums and art museums in the area of, physical, of visual images, but the redundancy is one that we're already used to and know how to deal with. You are as likely to find a copy of an old engraving or other print in a large research library as in a large art museum. And the chances indeed are that the library will have uh, cataloged the print better and thus make it more accessible than the museum has, especially if the print originally came out of a book. By no means all universities are going to go out of the rare book business, even if, if I am correct, most institutions now possessing rare book collections are going to downsize them, and many more are indeed going to leave the field entirely. Rare book librarians are going to have to cope with the fact that their institutional bases and funding sources are quite likely to shift, and they are going to have to be increasingly adroit at finding new homes for their collections and new justifications for their retention in their original physical formats. Institutions change and adapt or they fail. I remind you that the idea of college and university collapse is not a new one in this country. G. Edward Evans has suggested that at least as many colleges and universities in this country have failed as have survived over the past three centuries. Remember, please, that our society has historically tended to be quite unsentimental in its insistence that one generation make way for another. Perhaps this is nowhere more clear uh, than uh, in large cities where the life expectancy of physical structures tends to be quite limited in this country. Vast numbers of old books have thus far been acquired by and housed in our nation's libraries, first because the best way to get access to the contents of those books was by owning actual copies, and second because the cost of maintaining those books in their original formats was thought to be bearable. But now there is another way, and we must deal with the changes that way will create. You may be thinking that these changes are too drastic to occur quickly, but remember what happened to wood engravers between 1870 and about 1890, a 20-year period during which the photographically generated photo engraving virtually wiped them out as a profession. Remember that in 1900, almost nobody had access to an automobile in the United States. Less than a generation later, almost everyone did. Change can happen quickly. 
We have to guard against the belief that things will change, but not too much and not too fast. My colleague at the School of Library Service, Jessica Gordon, liked to point out that one of the chief difficulties in predicting the future lies not so much in getting the facts right as in predicting an accurate timeline. In the 60s, for example, it was predicted that computers would put people out of work, something that did not happen to any particular extent, either in the 60s or even in the 70s, though we were getting used to the notion. In the 1980s, when computers did begin to put people out of work, the idea was by then a commonplace one, and it was accepted without much social unrest as a fact of life. Tonight, 1991, I have predicted a future in which a new world of electronically generated information will supersede our present world of print-generated information, but I may very well have my timelines wrong. These changes may not happen as soon or as much over the next 30 years as I think they are going to. Oh, Lord, you may be thinking to yourself, make me wholly machine-readable, but not yet. But as you, play, as you pray, please bear in mind the possibility that though my timelines may be wrong, my conclusions are probably not. Sooner or later, the book is going to go the way of the horse. Well, that was me in 1991, and I don't think I did too badly, and there is very little uh, that I would wish to change, looking at it from a distance of 12 years later. Note, however, that I barely mentioned digitization and had little to say about the digitization of images. There was no Internet, at least one that I had access to, in 1991 at all. Further, in focusing on changes in libraries, I made what I considered to be the chief mistake that uh, I am responsible for in the 1991 paper. I focused on change in libraries. What I should have focused more on is changes in institutions as a whole. Because I think, in fact, over the past decade, institutional libraries have changed far less than the institutions of which they are a part. And it is my prediction that universities are going to continue to change and change dramatically over the next couple of decades. I think that the electronic conversion of text has proceeded every bit as quickly as I predicted. My undergraduates tend to be actively uncomfortable with non-machine-readable information. They don't mind books. They use books. They remember books. But they don't see the necessity for them either as conveyors of information where there are cheaper, more flexible, and more convenient alternatives readily available. The utility of rare books for original research was and remains incontestable. But how many scholars do research based on original printed or manuscript materials of the sort held by rare book libraries in parallel institutions? That number is relatively small, and it is decreasing. The American Research University has never been the only means of getting an education in this country or elsewhere, and in most areas of human endeavor. 
universities are increasingly and, per and I think correctly perceived as being less important for this purpose than they were even 11 years ago. I didn't mention distance education in 1991. The thought wouldn't have occurred to me. Silly me. I certainly mentioned that if I were giving this talk in 2002. Distance education is at the early stages of its development, but it's clear that we're going to see a lot more of it in the future, and a good thing. But it's not really a very good fit with rare books, which rely for their uh, impact on uh, physical presence. There's a further problem, as true in 91 as it is today, and a troubling one. Rare book collections in this country are overwhelmingly locally supported, but they are of national and international significance. So that there at Lehigh, to take one of the classic examples in this country, is the best collection of Darwin in the United States. Now, Lehigh is not simply a technological institute. It has a doctoral program in English literature and is interested in the history of science. As it happens, however, there is not now, nor has there been in my time, anyone on the Lehigh faculty who works on Darwin. Now, there are many people who do and who come to Lehigh to use the superb collection uh, given to them by Mr. Honeyman. But in this arrangement, we ask and continue to ask Lehigh University to main a collection using local resources, which is of value only in a national and international context. And that is, I think many of you will agree, an extremely unstable situation. Now, it's true of all of us. All of us maintain collections that we have little personal interest in as an institution, but are willing to continue to house, catalog, preserve, make available, because other institutions are doing the same with materials that they own, in which they have little interest, but we have a lot. Still, the pressures on rare book collections, which are not of local interest, will continue to increase. And I think the likely long-range solution to many of them is deaccession, to send them off to places where they will be uh, more likely to be used and appreciated, Kansas City Public Library solution. Much is made these days in ARL circles, Association of Research Library Circles, that special collections will, in the not-too-distant future, be the only thing that makes individual university libraries distinctive, because they will all be offering the same online services. That's just money, after all. With one important exception, I don't see much evidence that anybody in this country will be so infatuated by this fact that they will be willing to find the resources to support special collections. The exception is, I think, something between 20 and 50 university-based research libraries, of which I'm happy to say UCLA is, uh, uh, excuse me, University of Virginia is certainly one, and Columbia another which will become regional centers and probably beneficiaries of the deaccessioning ambitions of a great many other educational institutions, great and small, that find uh, 
that will find other ways of attempting to achieve distinction and excellence than through their bare, than through their rare book collections. The independent research libraries will prosper. They have the ability to change, to meet changing conditions quickly and adroitly. I worry about the monolithic, uh, comprehensive research universities because I see them as being increasingly unable to react quickly to change. And I think it will be very difficult over the long haul to continue to find funding for the maintenance of special collections within libraries that are, that are themselves under great stress. Between 1971 and 1992, I was professionally concerned at Columbia University with the training of rare book and research librarians and antiquarian booksellers in a rare book program. The trustees of Columbia University uh, voted to close the library school of which I was a part and did so in 1992. The last graduating class that I dealt with at Columbia was the class of 1992 and though it was a strong one, it was quite difficult for them to find jobs in rare books. I am very glad that I am not now running a program that is trying to find jobs for beginning rare book librarians because the market at the moment is the worst I have ever seen in my entire career and it has been not very good throughout the 90s. As I said in my 91 talk, for a long time rare book libraries were protected by the university directors against the staff cuts that so many other areas of the library had to endure. But in the 1990s, that ceased to be the case. And in almost every rare book library with which I am acquainted, and that is a lot, there have been staff cuts against the size of the collection. Many have had no, as Princeton has not, has had no staff cuts, but when the collection doubles, it's hard to see this as other than an, uh, an environment of, an, of increased austerity by comparison with what we enjoyed 20 years ago. If my thinking is even approximately correct, then the great challenge to the next generation is to try to begin to work out regional and national strategies for the preservation of what can be preserved. This is going to be difficult because the tradition of American research libraries, despite all the palaver, is towards independence, not towards cooperation. And this has especially been true in rare books. We're helped enormously by the uh, environment increasingly present in which the number of books you have is no longer particularly consequential. It's the variety and excellence of the services that you provide to your clientele that is increasingly being seen as important. And no one now says that you're the best library because you're the biggest. This is especially true when you're within 10 or 15 or 20 percent in size of another institution. And ARL has 
uh, begun significantly to change the way it ranks the excellence of university libraries in this country, basing a great deal of their thinking less on sheer numbers and much more on the utility and usefulness of the library as a whole. I think we've had a long and very interesting run in this country over the past 50 years in which libraries everywhere bought rare books quite indiscriminately in the in a general ambition to be better and to uh, be more interesting as an institution. I see university I see universities uh, becoming less central to uh, intellectual endeavor in this country and I see university libraries as regards to rare books similar being so. So I see a troubled future. One of the things that's very much been on my mind in recent years in a rare book school context is that the more people out there who know something about the book as a physical object the better off everybody's going to be if anything that I'm saying comes true. That we need, in other words, to have as many people in positions of authority as possible in this country who, if it is necessary to decimate a collection to reduce it by 10%, will have some idea of how to, do, some idea of how to go about this based on their knowledge of books as physical objects. This is the reason for the remorseless concentration in rare book school and practically all of the courses we offer on the book as a physical object. So it's not uh, a very bright picture that I'm presenting here, nor was it in 1991, but it's one I think that we need to face. I think there are too many rare books in this country. I think that's the way they're going to be seen. And though no one is going to destroy or even deaccession the most interesting ones, there's a lot of stuff in the middle and at the bottom that is increasingly heading for sanitary landfill. And uh, it is our duty, if nothing else, to lead the procession to the dump in some sort of intelligent fashion so that as much as possible can be preserved given the resources that we have one of the really nasty things about being a rare book librarian in this country is that you are almost always given immense responsibility and you are almost never given much authority. It's a bad, bad combination. And it's easy to blame ourselves for a situation that we cannot correct because we don't have access to the resources to do it. So, not a very happy story that I'm painting here, and I apologize for uh, my words of depression, but uh, I think that discussions along this line are going to be useful over the next decade or so. And if I'm wrong, then I invite you all to dance on my grave. So if you'd all now like to uh, drown your sorrows in wine, uh, there's a reception that follows immediately in the uh, first four staff lunch.